Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. If you're interested in more information about our church, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church. This morning we're going to be in uh, Psalm 24. And as I had said uh, these past couple weeks, we were going to be looking at these uh, three psalms in succession, Psalm 22, 23, and uh, 24, <clears throat> and uh, we've been covering them as far as how we as uh, believers should not fear, because specifically in each of these psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, we see a different glimpse of who Jesus really is. Um, and in Psalm 22, uh, if you remember, we saw Jesus as our suffering shepherd. He was the one that, uh, that suffered for us. He was the one that laid down his life for the sheep. And uh, we shouldn't fear because uh, he did that for us. In Psalm 23, we saw that Jesus was our guiding shepherd. And we need not fear because it is Christ who gives us everything. And uh, it is Christ who guides us. He leads us through uh, the valley of the shadow of death. And here in Psalm 24, <clears throat> this is the last of this trilogy of these, of these psalms. And we see Jesus here as the chief shepherd who is the king of glory. And he reigns with all authority and power. You know, I have found that when I get an accurate view of who Christ really is, fear, doubt, and faithfulness succumb to his ruling presence in my life. We need to have our minds and hearts fixed upon who Christ really is. We need to rest assured in his glory, on his glory of who he is. And this is what I'd like for you to take away with you today. Don't fear. Christ is the king of glory, and it is him alone whom we should worship. So let's dive here into here this uh, very fantastic passage here, Psalm 24. Let me read it to you here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Now let me give you a little bit of background information about this psalm. And I believe that it'll help us really understand its full flavor and really get the heart of what David was writing here. David wrote this psalm for a very special occasion 
We know that primarily because of the latter end of verses 7 through 10 as they're saying, who is this king of glory? Lift up your gates, lift up the heads, lift those things up. And the gates and the doorways here that he speaks about were gates and doorways of a particular building that David was writing about. And he's telling them, he's commanding them to pay attention, to look alive, as they say. And they're commanded to stand at attention because a very special being is entering into the building of which they are a part of. This individual is identified as the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name. And this is speaking of none other than the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel is going to enter into some sort of building. So then we ask ourselves, when did the Lord ever enter into a building in the Old Testament? Well, in particular, we can find a time when this happened during David's lifetime. And the answer to that question is, yes, we know that there was a time that this did happen. We find it in 2 Samuel chapter number 6 and 1 Chronicles 15. Give us the background information about when this actually took place. And we're not going to read through it here, but I encourage you to read it on your own to kind of really get the whole picture. But let me just give you a, a brief synopsis of what has happened. Israel had gone through a time of spiritual backsliding and had finally decided they, they were going to worship the Lord. And we find here David is preparing a place for the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a place for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in, and it was the Ark that was going to be brought into the very gates of the city of Jerusalem. And this is what was happening there. And there was great joy and celebration that was taking place as the Ark of the Covenant was making its way into the city of Jerusalem as it was passing through those gates. And David is saying, lift up the gates, lift them up. Look who's entering into the presence of the city of Jerusalem. It is none other than God himself. And so this psalm became known as a hymn that was used as worshipers who came to Jerusalem would sing as they approached the temple. And so this psalm, is a psalm about worship. And I find it very fitting that as we look at this psalm, that it was, as we look at it as in reference to worship, that if our hearts are not postured on worship and if our minds are not focused on worship of Christ as the King of glory, then we are worshiping something else. And could it be any wonder that, we, that fear would be overtaking our hearts and minds? So what must we do if we should not fear? Well, first of all, think biblically about his sovereignty. Think biblically about the Lord's sovereignty, that he is in control over everything. You say, what do you mean by this, by what we're asking? I mean, learn to filter everything that comes into your heart and mind through the word of God and his control. Hopefully this psalm will help us put these things into perspective for us. Notice how God wants us to think about him. Who he is, what he does, how he reigns. He wants us to focus on his glory, on, on his sovereignty, that he is in control. 
Notice our text here about how we should view God. Notice how it should change the way that we think about who he is. Look at verses one through two. It says here, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What should the things that should we be thinking about? Well, we should be thinking about as to his ownership. Notice the text here. It says that the earth is the Lord's. Everything in the earth, all of its beauty, all of its magnificence, with all of its forces and laws, all of its wealth in the ground, the air and the water. Then we think about man, how insignificant man really is compared to everything that the Lord owns. How significant is man? Not very significant. We are just but dust of the earth. What has man accomplished? Not very much. Man over the centuries has fought and died for a piece of dirt, for a right to claim ownership and kingship over people and things to proclaim. I have conquered. Look what I have done. I am man. But what does the Bible here tell us? It tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so in reality is God who is the owner and rightful king over all the earth. What else should we be thinking about? We should be thinking about his provision. Notice again here in the text, it says, and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is the Lord who causes all things to happen. And it is him who provides for all fullness in the earth. The the Lord is the one who makes the earth fruitful by providing plenty for all. What else should we be thinking about? We should be thinking about as to his control over all that inhabit the earth. Our text here again says, it is the Lord who is the owner of all the inhabitants of the earth. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue belong to the Lord. They all belong to him. What else should we be thinking about? Notice this in verse number two, as to his power. You see, listen what he says here. For he has founded it. The earth was founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It was God's creative power that brought the earth into being. And it is his creative power that is holding all things together. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So ultimately, who is in control? It is the Lord. And when we are faced with fear, we must remember to think biblically. Our worship must be in the right place. We must reckon in our minds and in our hearts that the Lord is the one that is in control, no matter the circumstances. So these opening two verses celebrate the greatness of the Lord, who alone is worthy to be worshipped. Notice here, secondly, who or what am I worshipping? 
As David continues with this psalm, he moves from what we think about God, who the Lord is, what he has done and is doing, to now how that we actually, how that actually affects our worship. Notice verses three through six. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy presence? He says here, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. That word Selah basically means to pause, to reflect, to let it sink down into your heart and think about it, dwell upon it, what this is saying, what he is saying. So verses three through six are just an outpouring here of worship language. Remember where Israel was at this time. <clears throat> they had just come out of a time of spiritual backsliding. The ark was being taken into the city. And you might be thinking, well, what does fear have to do with worship? Everything. We worship what we fear. Please don't misunderstand that. We worship what we fear. Whatever we fear the most, we worship as our God because fear is an act of worship. Throughout scripture, worship of God is connected with the word fear. When the Lord was speaking to Satan during his temptation, the Lord said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, Matthew 4.10. The, the Lord demands this worship, this fear, as due to him alone. Isaiah 50, verse number 12, it says, I, even I, am he who, com who comforts you. Who, who are you that you fear me, that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? Isaiah 51.19 says, These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So if we are fearing others or circumstances more than him, we give that worship to those things or others which is due only to God. And this, my friends, is just flat out plain idolatry. And we need to be very careful to not allowing fear to overtake what, what true worship should be for God and God alone in the times where fear seems to be coming into our, into our lives. Notice the requirements here for worshiping the Lord. You are going to see here a series of questions and a series of answers to those questions. 
Look here at verse number three. We find the first question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Then the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So only the righteous are qualified to stand before God and render worship. One thing is crystal clear. God is a holy God and he demands holiness from those who offer him praise. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse number 3, God says, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says that if we want to serve God acceptably, we must do it with reverence and godly fear. Look at the expressions here in our text. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The phrase there, clean hands and a pure heart, describes someone who is pure both within and without. In fact, this goes even further. Notice how verse number four really covers this. It covers our deeds, our thoughts, our desires, and our words. Clean hands that speaks of what we do. A pure heart that speaks of what we think. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? That speaks of what we long for and seek after. Does not swear deceitfully. That speaks of what we say, and it demands the utmost integrity in every way. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. I've seen verse number 8 quoted a lot during this whole uh, coronavirus pandemic. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Notice the echo here of Psalm 24, verse number four in that familiar passage of James 4, 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Those that have clean hands are the ones that are able to really worship the Lord. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Really, this verse is a rebuke to our, our, our idolatrous hearts. Because if we are fearing other things other than God, then we are worshiping those things more than God, and we are guilty of idolatry. Now notice this phrase in the middle of Psalm 24.4. Who is fit to stand before the Lord? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false. He's not speaking about just falsehoods here. I really like the rendering in the New King James Version of this verse. It's translated this way. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol? And that really falls in place here with all of what God is speaking about. It's not speaking only of a stone idol. It means anything that might divert your affections from the one true God who is worthy 
of your worship. To lift up your soul to something speaks of offering yourself, your time, your energy, your heart, your mind to a thing. In Psalm 25, 1, the, the very same expression is found, and it's used in the very next, next psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You see it there? So whenever we lift up our souls to anything else, we're guilty of worldliness and idolatry. And our worship is unacceptable to God. So I must ask myself the hard question. Have I been guilty of worshiping other things during this pandemic other than God? Has other things been deserving my attention, my affection, my heart, my mind? Have I been guilty of making fear something that I worship? Have I been guilty of making media and politics and experts and doctors and governmental regulations my worship more than God? The question that David is asking, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy presence, in his holy place? And when we really put that question to the test in our lives, none of us can say that we are the ones that can do that. This drives us to the gospel, my friends. There is really only one person in the history of humanity who truly fulfills the requirements of verse number four, and that is Christ and Christ alone. This verse is a description of him. He alone has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. So this text here is a reminder of our need for Christ. It is him alone that we should be worshiping. And it is only through Christ that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and render worship to God and find help and grace in the time of need. So what are you worshiping? What am I worshiping? Is our worship in the right place? Let's look at the third thing here. Lastly, don't lose sight of the coming king. Verses 7 through 10, look, what, look at this language that is used here. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. Let it sink in. Let it go down into your heart and think about what that means, that he alone is the king of glory. It's interesting to think about that when this psalm was written, little did David know that it would be fulfilled when Jesus entered into the gates as he did riding on that colt, and they took the palm branches and they spread them before the Lord. Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, who comes in the name of the Lord. But also, it would be fulfilled a second time when Jesus will return again. 
If I can give you the picture of what is happening here, there's a procession of singers and there's like a choir director and he is, he is singing one stanza and then the choir themselves comes back and they sing this chorus of joy, of glory about who the king is. And so what they're saying here, there's this overjoyous occasion of the Lord entering in to the city. Now, if I think if we're not careful, we can forget that all of this is just temporary. We are just pilgrims passing through. If we are not careful, we can forget who the Lord really is. That He is God, not our circumstances. Notice how many times in these last few verses the word lift occurs. Count them with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Four times that word lift is used. Now this is very significant. Because the psalm declares for the gates and the doors to be lifted up. Ancient gates and doors during that time had no parts that moved up or down. So what is this psalm talking about then? It refers to the lifting of one's head to acknowledge the entrance of one who is greater, more important than yourself. To lift one's head at God's entrance is to acknowledge God as God. So who is he? He's the King of glory. The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. He's our Creator, our Savior, and our Redeemer, our Lord, and our God. He is the King of glory. Again, not only was this fulfilled once when Christ entered in, but it will be fulfilled again when he returns. The psalmist announces the future coming of the king to earth. And it's not a question of if he will come, but just when he will come. He writes, the king of glory, he is the Lord, the supreme self-existing one. Let me just put this picture into your mind here. Listen to Revelation chapter number 11 verses 13 through 19. And this really gives us a good picture of when Jesus Christ returns as the King of glory and what that's going to look like. Revelation chapter number 11, verses 13 through 19 says this. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. And then again, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we get this picture of the coming king. And it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't lose sight of our coming King. Don't fear. Our coming King is going to come. He's going to rule and reign there is no one greater, no one stronger, no one wiser. He is truly glorious. And since he is coming, we should be anticipating and preparing for him to return. We can do this by resting in who he is and surrendering to him for he is good. Our king is coming. And so let's not fear, but rather rejoice. John wrote in the end of Revelation, he who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifewiththeridge.church.